It is just beautiful to me to hear the voices of those kids as they want to worship and praise. Didn't they do an awesome job this morning? Let's give them a hand again. I have to confess I am a little biased because one of my kids is on the team up there as well, but they did a great job. Well, as was mentioned earlier, um, we are doing our When Suddenly Christmas series right now. And this series is all about looking at some of the people from the story of Christmas that experience those when suddenly moments, when something unexpected happened. God showed up in an unexpected way, or their life took a twist that they just didn't see coming. And through this series, we're looking at these stories and learning how each of those individuals were able to um, learn something about the richness of God's presence, even in the midst of the unexpected. And I know that we all can relate to the unexpected moments, those moments that you didn't see it coming, right? We all have had those times when life has just come at you fast and you didn't see it coming. It reminds me a little bit of those old nationwide commercials, the life comes at you fast ones. Do you remember those? In case you don't, we brought one for you this morning. I'd like you to take a little look. Life comes at you fast. Life comes at you fast. It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? You think one thing's coming, and next thing you know, you turn around, and the unexpected happens. Life does come at us fast. And sometimes they're fun moments that we can just laugh at when we didn't see it coming. Like when my daughter was in the barber shop, and um, she's standing next to the balding guy, and I didn't see it coming when she looks up at him and she just blurts out, you should get a discount because you don't have much hair. (laughs) Thank you, Morgan. (laughs) We didn't see it coming, but we can laugh at some of those moments. But there are other moments that we didn't see coming that don't seem quite as funny, right? It's not quite as funny when you didn't see it coming that you were going to lose your job. It's not quite as funny when you didn't see it coming that the doctor was going to give you that diagnosis. Or maybe you didn't see it coming that that transition in life, maybe you just got married and you didn't see it coming that that transition to married life was going to be quite as hard as it was. Sometimes those things are hard to navigate. The journey gets hard and we need to figure out how we're going to respond to those when suddenly moments that we didn't see coming. And we have two choices really. We can respond in fear or we can respond in faith. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at two people from the Christmas story who responded very differently to these when suddenly moments. We're going to look at the story of Herod and how he responded in fear and the story of Mary and how she responded in faith. And hopefully as we look at their stories this morning, we can learn something about our own lives of how we can choose faith over fear when the journey gets hard. So if you haven't already pulled your outline out of your program guide, you can do that now. Grab a pen and get ready to follow along as we dive into when suddenly the journey got hard. So when the journey gets hard, first of all, fear will derail me. Fear will derail me. We know that fear does strange things inside of us, doesn't it? When we get fearful or afraid, there's this weirdness that starts happening inside of us that never ends well for anyone around us, right? 
Because fear has a way of just kind of consuming and getting into our, our lives and causing us to make decisions or bad judgment calls because we're just in this mode of trying to navigate around this fear that we have in our lives. And that's exactly what was happening to Herod in the story that we're looking at today. Now, you have to understand that Herod was not a healthy man by many accounts. Herod was driven by a desire for power and control. He was consumed with a fear of losing power and control. And on many levels, people um, presume that he had actually gone insane because he was so consumed with this desire to maintain his power and his control. Now, Herod was legitimately in somewhat of a precarious position because Herod, though he was a Jew in name, he ruled as king of Judea under the authority of the Roman government. And we all know that the Jews and the Romans never really played nicely in the sandbox together. And so Herod's in this position where he has one foot in each of these worlds, and he's trying to maintain this balance of power and control between these two worlds. And he has this horrible fear of this rocking boat that sooner or later he's going to lose control, and that is his driving fear. He is so driven by this fear that Herod actually ended up executing one of his wives and at least two, if not three, of his sons, depending on which historical documents you reference, two or three of his sons he ended up executing because he feared that they were a threat to his kingship. That's how controlled by fear this man was. He was willing to go to those lengths to maintain his power and control. His fear of losing it so derailed him. So you can just imagine when three guys from the Far East show up at the palace door one day and say, hey, guess what? We are here to worship the new king of the Jews. And Herod had to go completely bonkers at that, which he did go completely crazy about that because the thing that he feared the most, these people were showing up and saying, hey, there's a new king that's going to come and threaten your kingship. That's how he heard it. And so he went a little bit crazy, and his fear derailed him. Let's look at a story from Matthew chapter 2. It's in your program guide, or you can follow along um, on the screens today. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child." And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. Yeah, that was going to happen. But when it was time to leave, they went home another way because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to try to kill the child. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, because the wise men had told him when the star first appeared to them, which was about two years earlier. 
Herod's brutal action fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. A cry of anguish is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning unrestrained. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. All of this happened because of this fear that Herod had. This fear completely derailed him. He was deeply disturbed, which for Herod translated, I went a little bananas because of this fear. And can you just imagine the wake of grief this man left behind him? Rachel is weeping and mourning unrestrained, weeping for her children because they're dead. This is what happened as a result of this one man's fear. And the thing that gets to me about this story is that it didn't have to end that way. That's not how it had to turn out. Herod could have made a choice to bow his knee to this new Messiah. He could have made a choice to get beyond himself and realize the sun doesn't rise and set on my life and all the things that are so important to me. He could have seen that there was a bigger picture, a bigger story that God was writing. He could have seen that there was something beautiful that God was doing here. And his story could have been recorded as a beautiful one where he could have had his story recorded as the first king who bowed his knee and worshiped the king of all kings. What an amazing story that would have been. But it didn't happen that way. Why? Because of Herod's fear. He was afraid. He was afraid of losing his power. He was afraid of losing his control and his identity and his comfort and his security and everything that had always defined who he was. He was afraid of losing it. And so the story ends with a brutal massacre of these toddlers in Bethlehem, a wake of destruction behind this man. Now, before we get too bent out of shape, though, about Herod's wake of destruction, I want us to stop and consider for just a moment what wake of destruction we may leave behind ourselves when we get into that fearful place, when we get into that place where fear is driving our decisions and what, how we're responding and how we're reacting Think about the times where fear has led you into a really unhealthy place and has just consumed you. I was thinking about that for my life this week, and I know that I've told you the story before about our journey with infertility and um, kind of that whole story of how we were married for a long time before we were able to get pregnant with our first child and what an amazing miracle that was. But the part of the story that I don't think I've shared with you before is the fear that came with that for me. And I remember when we first discovered that we were pregnant with our first child. And I was so excited and I was so ecstatic about this new life. I couldn't believe that it was actually happening. And yet at the same time, I felt this fear come into my heart because while I was so excited, I was realizing my hope and my anticipation of this child was getting higher and higher, and I was so afraid of what would happen if something went wrong. What if something went wrong and we lost this child? I didn't know if there was any way that I was going to be able to pick up the pieces of my heart again after that. And so I remember for a few weeks not even really wanting to talk about the pregnancy at first because I was just so consumed with this fear of what might happen to me if I lost this baby. Well, somehow or another, I managed to kind of push that fear off to the side, kind of get it under the control. But that's just the thing. I tried to get it under control but didn't really deal 
with the fear. Because in my mind, I kept thinking, thinking, if I make it through the rest of this pregnancy, and once this child is born, then that fear is going to go away because then my baby will have arrived and I, I won't need to be fearful anymore. But you know what happened? That child was born, and he was perfect, and he was beautiful, and he stole my heart all over again. And that fear came rushing back in like it hadn't been there even before because now this child was here. And again, what if I lose him? And I went a little neurotic those first few weeks of his life. I have to be honest. I don't know if there's some postpartum thing going on there or what, but I was so consumed with making sure that everything was perfect for this child. I would fidget over him and fuss over him and turn that baby monitor all the way up to the highest level so that I could hear each and every one of his breaths. And I know there's moms out here who have done that too. I know you're out there today. But you know that feeling. You just, I just wanted to control all of it. I wanted to make it all so perfect because I didn't want there to be any chance that I was going to lose this little life. And I wasn't enjoying it at all because I was so stressed about making sure that everything was just right so that nothing bad could ever happen because this fear was driving me. And then when Nick was about two weeks old, we got a horrible, horrible phone call. And in that phone call, we learned that very good friends of ours had just experienced a devastating loss in their family, a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, I don't even know what to do with this, loss in their family. And I remember sitting on my bed after we got that call, and I felt like I could barely even breathe. It was just taking my breath away because I realized that my deepest fear had just come true for this family. And my mind was racing to try to make sense of it all and figure out how can this happen. No, this can't be true. There has to be something that can be done to undo what's happened. And there was nothing. There was nothing that could be done. And over the next few weeks, as my heart just broke for this family, it began to dawn on me that no amount of fear, no amount of manipulation, no amount of control, no amount of making things perfect could have changed their situation. No amount of fear or control or manipulation was going to bring back what had been lost. I didn't have control over that. My my fear was going to have no ounce of influence whatsoever on the beating of a heart, mine or anyone else's. My fear would never have any influence over any situation. And strangely enough, it was that realization that caused me to loosen my grip on that fear a little bit because I realized I had no choice but to let go of control and to surrender to the one who is the giver of life and to be able to say to God, I'm going to trust you to hold my heart. Come what may, good or bad, I'm going to trust you to hold my heart because I have no control over this. And I know that that family was doing the same thing. That family that was grieving was doing the same thing at that same time, saying, God, as best as we know how, we are going to trust you to hold our hearts. It was a process like none other for me to really understand that I needed to give that fear to God and let him hold that. And I ultimately realized 
that my fear, my consuming fear, had been causing me to miss the joy of the moment. And I was letting that fear derail me instead of embracing the gift that was today. You see, fear will always lead us places that we don't want to go. You never want to go where fear will lead you. Good things don't come from fear. And given a chance, fear will step in and will take over. Fear likes to kind of come into the creases and the crevices and the cracks in your life and try to take over and start informing your decisions and your reactions and your reactions to people. That's what fear does. It will come in and try to run your life. And that's what happened with Herod. And so I encourage you to consider this morning, what are the fears in your life? What are the fears that are driving your decisions and leading you into places that maybe aren't healthy? Maybe you have a fear of being alone. And so that's driving you towards unhealthy relationships. Maybe you have a fear of being rejected. And so you're trying to become all things to all people and become a people pleaser. And you're leaving kind of a wake of disaster behind you by trying to do all of these things. Maybe you have a fear of the unknown. And so, like me, you try to control all of the situations around you and manipulate all the situations so that it's all going to work out exactly the way that you planned it to work out. And you're driving the people around you bananas (laughs) with your desire to control. Maybe you have a fear of looking foolish. And that fear is leading you to not be willing to take a risk or try something new. That fear is running your life and informing what you can and can't do because of this fear. I encourage you to consider deep down inside, is there a fear that's driving you to places that are unhealthy for you? Is there a fear that is derailing you? And then make a decision. Are you going to let that fear be the thing that informs your life or will you choose another way? Because there is another way. When the journey gets hard, fear will derail us like it did for Herod. But I believe with all my heart that faith will sustain us. And that's what Mary chose. When the journey gets hard, faith will sustain me. This is this different perspective on this story, the different side of this story that I think is so beautiful. Because Mary chose faith. But I want us to understand this morning that Mary's journey was still hard. It wasn't like Mary had this cakewalk (laughs) that she was going through. The journey for Mary was very hard. She definitely had a life-comes-at-you-fast moment (laughs) that she didn't see coming because Mary was an honorable girl. She was planning an honorable marriage, an honorable wedding to this honorable man. She was doing everything right everything that she was supposed to do. And then all of a sudden, this angel shows up with this proclamation that she's going to become an unwed mother. That carried a whole boatload of consequences for her. That was a life-comes-at-you-fast moment. Here's her story as it's recorded in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be frightened, Mary, the angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign, reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she's already in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant, and I am willing to accept whatever he wants. May everything you have said come true. And then the angel left. We need to understand the implications of what God was asking of Mary. Asking her to become an unwed mother turned her whole world upside down, put a lot of stuff in jeopardy for her, would have put her relationship with Joseph in jeopardy, would have put her reputation in jeopardy, because who on earth would believe this story? It seemed completely unbelievable, right? Her very life would have been put into jeopardy because if Joseph had decided to accuse her, she could have been stoned in the street for adultery. The implications of what God was asking her to do were huge. And so a few days later, Mary decides to go visit Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. We talked about their story last week about Elizabeth and Zachariah and their pregnancy. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And I have to think that she probably just felt like she needed to have a little bit of time away to clear her head and process all that was happening to her. And so she leaves for a few months, stays with Zechariah and Elizabeth for a few months, and then comes back to Nazareth a few months later when her pregnancy would have been probably starting to show. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Nativity Story, but I think they did a really good job of depicting what it may have been like when Mary returned to Nazareth and this assignment that God had given her was for the first time exposed to the people in her town. So let's take a look at this clip from the nativity story of what that moment may have been like for Mary. Joseph? 
Joseph. Joseph. An angel told you this, that you would bear the Son of God, Mary. Elizabeth had a baby, even in her old age. Elizabeth has a husband! Women have been put to death for this. They could stone you in the street. Do you understand? You should have stayed with Elizabeth. Father. Father. I've broken no vow. Oh, you have broken every vow, Mary. Was it one of her soldiers? Was it? I have told the truth. Whether you believe is your choice. Not mine. What of Joseph? He's a good man, Mary. But this, this is too... Let me speak. Please. Let me speak. you, Mary? I believed you were a woman of great virtue. I have lived my life seeking honor. Honor. Mary, so how am I to answer this? If I claim this child is mine, I will be lying. I will have broken a law laid down by God. I would never ask you to lie. If I say this child is not mine, they will ask what I want to do. And if I accuse you, There is a will for this child, greater than my fear of what they may do. I love that line that Mary says at the end. There is a will for this child, greater than my fear of what they may do. You know, when we first read in Luke chapter 1, Mary's response to the angel Gabriel, and she says, I am willing to accept whatever he wants. I'm tempted to think of that response as a one-time response that Mary made in that one moment for that one situation. But you know, as I dug into the story of Mary's life this week, I realized that had to have been a commitment that she came back to time and time and time again 
over the years. Because when you look at the, the whole of the story, you realize that people didn't know who Jesus was, really, just because he was born. That journey for Mary didn't end when Jesus was born. Jesus was 30 years old before he began his public ministry, and people began to suspect that maybe he might truly be the Messiah. Mary had no proof that this baby, this child that she raised all of those years, was truly the Messiah for a really long time. So for all those years, Mary would have had to carry the weight of those judgmental glances, the whispers behind her back, the mark on her family name. Yeah, that's that family. You know what happened there. And then they made up this cockamamie story about how that happened. For all the years, Mary would have had to shoulder that. And even more, we don't know how many of those years Mary shouldered that alone because we don't know exactly when Joseph died. We know that Joseph was around when Jesus was 12, but he wasn't there during Jesus' public ministry. So somewhere in the, that interim time, we can make a pretty good presumption that Joseph died in there somewhere. So there's a good chance that Mary carried a lot of that weight on her own. And I have to believe that there were plenty of times that Mary came back to that commitment that she made in front of the angel Gabriel saying, I am willing to accept whatever he wants. And I have to believe that sometimes she probably uttered it as a prayer to God. I'm willing to accept, Father, whatever you want in the sweetness of a moment. But I'm also willing to bet that there were times that she uttered that prayer as a resolution to herself to remind herself of that commitment. I am willing I am willing, I will be willing to accept whatever he wants. It had to have been a hard journey for Mary, but why did she keep going? Why did her fears not derail her? Because she chose faith. She chose faith in a God whom she trusted, a God who she believed was who he said that he was. And she was going to put her faith and her trust in that God. And that faith sustained her, even when the journey was hard. Now, I don't think that meant that Mary didn't have questions. I'm positive that Mary had questions. I'm positive that Mary got a little afraid sometimes. The truth is, we all have fears, and we all have doubts sometimes. And you might even argue that you can't truly have faith if you don't have a little bit of doubt because if I know it all, and if I see it all, and I understand it all, that's not faith. That's knowledge, and knowledge is a good thing, yes. But it's not faith when I can see the whole picture. By its very definition, faith implies a level of doubt, because faith is trusting in the thing that you cannot yet see, the thing that you can't truly get your hands on yet. You haven't fully proven because you can't yet see it. That's exactly how Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith. Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. And that's what Mary chose to believe in, the thing that she couldn't yet see, because somewhere inside, Mary knew that God was a person who she could trust. And I want you to understand this morning that faith is not stupidity, <laughs> Okay? Faith is not a blind leap into nothingness, hoping that something out there somewhere eventually catches me. No, that's not what faith is at all. Faith is an intentional decision, an intentional commitment that we make to put our trust in something that we believe is going to hold us. More specifically, faith is 
making a decision to put our trust in a person, in someone who we believe is going to catch us. It's not a blind leap into nothingness. It's a leap into the hands of a God who we believe will catch us. That's what faith is. I love this quote by John Ortberg um, from his book, Faith and Doubt. It says, faith is not simply holding beliefs. Many people, when they consider faith, think, I believe that God exists, or scripture is accurate, or love is the greatest virtue. But at its core, faith is not simply the belief in a statement. It puts its trust in a person. Faith is more than what we just believe in our minds. It's trusting in that person who we believe will catch us. In his book, Faith and Doubt, I think John Ortberg gives us a really good um, word picture of what it means to be caught and to trust someone to catch us. So I want to read a little segment from his book, Faith and Doubt, for you this morning. This comes from Henry Nouwen, whose gift to the world was his struggle with pain and faith as the wounded healer. The final year of his life, he took a sabbatical from working and writing. He longed for God, yet found it hard to pray. He found himself drawn, go figure, to a circus act. A Dutch priest who had taught at Harvard and Yale was hanging out with the greatest show on earth. They were a trapeze act, the Flying Rodleys. He watched them perform and got to know them. Trapeze artists usually use a safety net nowadays, but even falling into one of those is dangerous and sometimes fatal. There were five members in the act, three flyers and two catchers. The flyer climbs the steps, mounts the platform, and grasps the trapeze. He leaps off the platform, swinging through the air. He uses his body for momentum, swinging with increasing speed and height. The catcher hangs from his knees on another trapeze with his hands free to reach out. The moment of truth comes when the flyer lets go. He sails into the air with no support, no connection to the earth. He does a somersault or two. Picture him in the middle of a somersault and freeze the frame. There's absolutely nothing at that moment to keep the flyer from plunging to his death. What do you think he feels like? Do you think he feels fully alive, that every cell in his body is screaming out? You think he's feeling any fear right then? In the next moment, the catcher swings into our view. He has been timing his arcs perfectly. He arrives just as the flyer loses momentum and is beginning to descend. His hands clasp the arms of the flyer. The flyer cannot see him. To the flyer, everything is a blur. But the flyer feels himself snatched out of the air. The catcher takes the flyer home. And the flyer is very, very glad. (laughs) Now and spent some time getting to know the flyers. Flyers are small, weighing 150 pounds or less, because if you're a catcher, you don't want a flyer with a sweet tooth. (laughs) He learned about the equipment they used. They had socks filled with magnesium dry powder for their hands, especially for Joe, because Joe was one of the catchers. They told Henry, Joe sweats a lot. If you're a flyer... You don't want to catch her with sweaty hands. Here's where trusting comes in. Letting go is always an act of trust. Rodley told Nowen, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. Nowen asked him, how does it work? He answers, answered, the secret is that the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and wait. Henry asked him, you do nothing? A flyer must fly, and a catcher 
must catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there waiting for him. We are all going to have to let go someday, but we get to choose to whom we jump. We get to choose not our level of certainty, but the convictions to which we commit. Believing matters. We get to choose the convictions to which we commit because believing matters. Faith means being caught by a person, by reaching out to the person of Jesus and trusting him to be the one who will be there to catch us. But if we want to fly, we need to be able to let go. We will never fly if we're not willing to let go. And that's what fear does to us. I know in my life, when I get afraid, I hang on tight. And I don't want to let go. And then I miss the opportunity to fly. But Jesus wants all of us to be able to fly. He wants us to know the exhilaration of that feeling of taking the leap and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will catch us. And he promises us he does not have sweaty hands like Joe the catcher. (laughs) He will be there to catch us every time. And I'm coming to learn that I can fly without fear because Jesus will catch me. We were made to fly. Each and every one of us were made to fly. And I challenge you to consider today how God might be asking you to let go and trust him to be your catcher, to fly. We have some stories this morning of people who made that commitment, who decided to take the leap of faith and trust Jesus to be their catcher, and they would like to share their story this morning. We'll have it via video in just a minute, and then they're going to get baptized this morning. And as they do, I want you to do two things this morning. First of all, I want you to celebrate their decision to fly today, their decision to have faith that will sustain them. And so when they get baptized, I want you to celebrate with them. And when they come up out of the water, you can clap, you can cheer, you can do whatever it is that you want to do to express your excitement for them and their decision to fly. But the second thing I'd like to ask of you this morning is to consider where God is asking you to let go. Maybe for the very first time, he's asking you to say, let go and trust me to catch you. Maybe there's a specific area in your life that you're still trying to hang on and you've not been able to experience that sensation of flying because you've not been really ready to let go. And I challenge you this morning as you see these stories and celebrate with these people that have chosen to fly that you consider how God is asking you to fly as well this morning. So let's pray together, then we're going to see the stories and do the baptisms and um, learn what God wants to teach us about flying today. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for being the one who will catch us each and every time. Thank you that we can trust you. And God, I ask you to show us where we need to let go. Give us the ability to have faith that sustains us, that we do let go and that we can leap into your arms and let you catch us. Thank you for a God who can be trusted. We love you, God. Amen. I wanted to be baptized because um, since I've been coming to Daybreak for 
about six years now. Um, neighbors of ours who have since moved away uh, invited us to come and neither my wife or I grew up in a family that really went to church um, but we were had been talking about it, uh, about looking for a place to um, that you know that we might be able to, to feel comfortable at and, and uh, be excited about going to church and it was before we had started a family so we wanted we started to think about that and uh, immediately the very first time we came we were um, just overjoyed with the, the fact that wow this this you know this is how a, a church can be a church family can be um, right away it just felt very comfortable and at home and um, so just through coming to Daybreak and, and getting to know Christ and, and, um, and learning and, uh, and so forth and, and just you know, attending regularly, there have been so many blessings in that short many time, uh, short little bit of time. It just felt like it was time for me to finally sort of say, you know, um, say publicly that I'm all in. I want to be baptized because I want everybody to know that I want to follow Jesus. I want to be baptized so I can feel closer to God. I want to be baptized because I've really felt the Lord working in my life these past couple of months and I just, I feel like this is my next step with my journey with Him. He's just, He's leading me and telling me, yes, it's time. Since I recommitted my life back to Christ, um, I just want to make a public, you know, commitment that you know, I'm deciding to follow him, you know, and that I can be held accountable to my church family. I really want to be baptized because I feel like uh, whenever I first started going to church, I knew just about nothing about Jesus and all that, which was just about a year ago. Um, but then I, it was actually in the Easter service. They pretty much went over all that, and I really understood it, and I and I understood what he sacrificed for us, so I felt like I should pay him back. I want to be baptized because uh, lately I've been thinking more about Jesus and how he really changes my life. My faith in Jesus has changed because he's really helped me through a lot of tough times. I want to be baptized because I want to recommit my life to Christ. Um, uh, I was baptized when I was a younger child, and I don't think you fully understand it. Well, I want to be baptized because I love Jesus. Um, I want to glorify Him, and I want to recommit my life to Him. I've actually changed my life at the age of 24. That's when I understood what it was to accept God's grace. Um, after having uh, fallen to sin for some years of my life, I. Um, I felt his presence, I accepted him, and, and he's been with me ever since through all the joys and trials in my life. My, my faith in Jesus uh, has changed me in many, many ways, and, and I think will hopefully till the day I die. Um, currently, um, it's, uh, I feel convicted of pride, and I'm just very aware of, of how pride can just um, be invasive in your life, in decisions and thoughts and actions, words. Um, so my faith in Jesus has allowed me, I think, to first understand that. Uh, and, and the other thing that um, uh, is going on in my own uh, life now is, is that uh, I, I see people in a different way. Um, 
I can't say through the eyes of Jesus exactly, but but uh, have a, a more appreciation of the grace that He has, um, you know, given me. My faith in Jesus has grown um, because I've learned to trust Him even through tough times. My faith in Jesus has really changed me. Um, about two and a half years ago, uh, I lost my eyesight when I was pregnant with my daughter, and uh, I'm a pretty stubborn person. <laughs> so God really needed to take something major to bring me to my knees, you know, and uh, he took every distraction out of my life because he wanted me to concentrate on him. And through his grace and mercy, he gave it back to me. And he gave me a blessing, you know, a beautiful baby girl. And he's really worked a lot in my life, you know. And I know that no matter what I face, he's always going to be there for me, you know, to rely on and, you know, I can make it through life because I got him standing right next beside me. My faith in Jesus has changed me pretty much because like before I guess, before I came to church, I um, like, I didn't really think about what I did. And then whenever I first started coming to church, it I guess it kind of changed my attitude and it kind of made me think about what I said and what I did before I did it. So I guess, it, I guess overall it kind of made me a better person. Go Jesus! Uh, my faith in Jesus has really opened my heart up to new experiences. Uh, I've just, I've grown as a person with him, through him. Um, it's just, it's transformed me as a person. I've always been a talkative person, and I've always been a happy person, but there was something always missing, and, and now that, um, I've made the commitment. Um, I can't stop talking about Jesus and all the good things. I go back to work and I can recite the Sunday sermon. Um, it's made me aware of how good He's been to me all of my life, not just three years ago when I walked in, but all of my life. He's been there for me. He's pulled me out of messes and he's always provided for me and my kids. Um, always. He's never let me down. And all I do is when, when I have something that's bothering me, Jesus take it over. And he's been there for me. And being baptized means that I'm thanking him. I'm, I'm willing to Hold on to his hand.
His blood, the wine, broken and poured out, all for love. The whole earth trembled, and the veil was torn. Love so. Blessed Redeemer 